0: Here's another tidbit from the Bonnet College. Electrum is a real thing. No, really. It's a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver. It was used for coins in Greece,
1: Carthage, and Rome. So when you get 2,000 Electrum pieces, don't think, this
0: could have been 1,000 gold pieces. Think, people actually use these things. Then think, we need to get this converted to 1,000 gold pieces. And now we present to you, Thaco with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D followed us home and we want to keep it.
1: Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew. I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became head gnome for reasons.
0: <laughs> and I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnomes2, I've got my own site, WhatDoIKnowJR.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs.
1: After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, we'll be jumping into the Dungeon Masters workshop, where we're going to be talking about treasure and other rewards for our D&D games. Then we'll have some recommendations for D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. My campaign journal is a little light this week. Um, as I mentioned in our last episode, I haven't had a chance to run since before the holidays. And while I will get to play before this episode drops, it will not be before this episode is <laughs> recorded. Um Theoretically, I'm going to be running the teen D&D game on Friday after New Year's and then my Depths of Zendric campaign on the Saturday after New Year's. To be fair, I'm not sure the kids remember agreeing to playing on that Friday, so <laughs> we'll see if they actually remember when I start poking them about it. Um, I'm pretty sure the Depths of Zendric game will happen regardless. In the meantime, I've been poking at some of the changes in Shard and trying to Create an exhausted condition that my players (laughs) can apply if they have that condition, which is something we've set up as part of the whole Traveler's Curse saving throw they do. This was something that I I knew enough to know that this should be possible, but not enough to actually get it done. So I was (laughs) able to, to get something set up that appropriately applied a negative modifier. Uh, and appropriately tracked the number of levels of the condition they had, but what it didn't do is add the negative for each level they had. So it was always negative one. I couldn't get it to basically if they had level two of the condition, I couldn't change that negative to be negative two. So I ended up going to the Shard Discord and asking for help, which I highly recommend uh, if you're going to play around with Shard. Their Discord is great. I'm not necessarily an active member of the community, but I have found they are in incredibly helpful and welcoming in their questions and their modeling chat groups to basically like try and figure out how to make Mm -hmm. things work. So I ended up going and, you know, tried several different things that were suggested to make it work, but nothing was working. And then one of the devs uh, came on and said, he added a functionality that should make it work. The problem was, is he told me how to do it in dev language and, I couldn't quite understand <laughs> dev language, so it took me several tries before I finally got what he was actually saying and knew what to properly plug in, and now it worked. So basically, for every level of exhaustion they have, they will have that level of negatives applied to all of their D20 rolls. Hooray, Hooray! It works! I was just really happy to get that figured out.
0: And one of my favorite things so far out of 1D&D. <laughs> it is. It's, it's,
1: it's a really useful thing. And like, I'm a fan of advantage-disadvantage as a general concept, but I find that having disadvantage applied to you as a consistent thing you have to do all the time is really debilitating as a a character.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I've also been poking a bit at the encounters I have set up uh, for the players to get involved with. Um, There's a few story elements I need to add in. Like I have the encounters already populated in Shard, ready to go, but for my own notes, I need to pad them with some story elements for stuff I want to use to as kind of connective tissue between what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. I think I'm ready. Part <laughs> of the problem is is I've never run a campaign like this where they can go wherever they want, and it's not like I'm a railroad EGM. Mm-hmm. GM. I, I do not railroad my players. I, I adapt on the fly very well to them going where they want to go and doing what they want to do, But it's never been a situation of I don't have an idea of where they're heading. So it's like, yeah, they could decide. Like, I know I have stuff planned to the east. They could (laughs) decide to go north and I don't really have anything planned for the north. So do I do the Schrodinger's Ogre and just move (laughs) the encounter to the north? Or do I just say, oh, well, I'll make something up on the fly and hope they eventually go through the hex that has that encounter in it that I've got planned? I also really need a better map of Zendrik. The one I have has a, a hex map on it, which is really good for planning and knowing distance. But the map itself is not very detailed. It's just kind of green and brown blotches. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> zoomed
1: up to the level where I have it because somebody made this hex map for the entire continent and I'm really only using the upper peninsula at this point and the map doesn't have enough detail to let me riff off of okay well there's probably a valley here and there's a river here and just so I've been kind of playing it loose but I'd like to get a better map that I can kind of work with.
0: I wonder if anybody's uh, put anything together based on the MMO because you know that is the region that the Old D and D online was set in.
1: The picture of Stormreach that I use is actually from the MMO because it's this nice. You're coming in on the bay and you can see the the I can't remember the the tight the the statue with the light shooting up out of it. <laughs> uh, it has a name, but anyway. So. I think I might jump into campaign cartographer and see if I can poke around and make something. But then again, I also just started playing The Witcher 3 for the first time. (laughs) So we'll see what happens.
0: As far as my campaign journal, um, I'm a mess after the holidays. So I forgot to send out our uh, schedule for our next session. So unfortunately, one of our players took me at my word and (laughs) and scheduled something (laughs) the night that we were supposed to play. So We were down a player and it was totally my fault, but I was just happy that three out of four of them guessed that my brain would have been on vacation as well. So (laughs) we had a few people show up.
1: In the last session, we talked about everyone being able to play the Thursday after Christmas, but I also completely (laughs) understand why Jeremiah made other plans because there was nothing on his calendar.
0: Oh, yeah. So after the PCs were acquitted from during their uh, trial last session, they followed through on their promise to the horologist to look into the smugglers tunnels and all of the activity that was going on there the fact that the smugglers don't want the uh, cult of nethus bringing in people from there to cause nastiness in the city and then shoot back down to those tunnels and get away and they don't want the authorities being the ones that poke around and find out so our pcs were the ones that uh, ended up looking into these smugglers caves and there's also been some smugglers caverns that have had high disappearance rates for smugglers so those two facts together caused us to uh the horologist to give them some symbols that might mark where these caves are at and the most dangerous portions for them to look at
1: caves let's be honest they were sewers
0: they were sewers that slowly turned into caves but they were still kind of sewers yes
1: they still stink.
0: <laughs> um I had them make a group check when they were following those symbols to find the uh, proper smugglers' caves. I don't have a lot of opportunity to let people use thieves' cant, so I ruled that if you knew thieves' cant, because these are symbols used by a smuggling organization, you would have advantage on those checks. And I think Kazina the only one that ended up being able to take advantage of that. Oddly enough, Kazina was also the only one <laughs> that made the group check. <laughs> So going down into the, since this did start off in the sewers, everyone had to make a constitution save to not get the poison condition. If they would have still had the poison condition and they took the extra time to find the tunnels, they would have been saving against the sewer plague. So thankfully, Mazrum, our cleric, managed to get everyone out of the poison condition before the sewer plague could end up being a problem for anyone?
1: Yay for lesser restoration.
0: Yes. (laughs) But I was not going to have them not find the Smuggler's Caves if they failed the check because... I mean, that's... By this point in time, if no one has told you this, don't ever halt an adventure because people can't make a check. You can complicate an adventure because they don't make a check, but don't halt an adventure because they can't make a check.
1: Never put your plot behind a locked door that your players might not be able to open.
0: (laughs) So then... Since it took them longer, they routed themselves through a passageway that just happened to have corpse worms in it. And corpse worms are another really nasty kobold-pressed creature that, well, they eat corpses, and um, if you happen to stab them, they can regurgitate corpses and acid (laughs) onto you, and they can pick you up and grapple you, and if you're grappled, they have a chance to swallow you. So they ran into two of these nasty things. The nice thing is that... I personally, this is just a logic thing. Nothing tells you that you have to do this, but considering that Ivy blasted it in the face with fire while she was being grappled, I ruled, I don't know, if something shot fire into my mouth when I was trying to eat it, I would probably drop it. (laughs) So,
1: (laughs) I mean, I've watched some people eat hot wings before. Not everyone is that smart.
0: And I mean, since since I used that logic for Ivy, when uh, Kazina also used her hellish rebuke, that one also dropped her and did not try and eat her. Um, I think Mazroom was probably the one that was closest to actually getting swallowed. (laughs) But having three players and uh, two enemies, it actually kind of gave us a little bit more time to dig into the beast companion rules from NCDM that we've been using for Ivy's companion, and actually the little uh, little void dragon wormling was pretty useful. Just about every other round, he had enough aggression built up to be able to use his breath weapon, and otherwise he would just kind of do like a little tiny bite, but that breath weapon every other round did seem to help out a lot. He's a dangerous little cutie. (laughs) And he didn't go berserk at any point either. We managed to, uh, that, that flow of, uh, ferocity kept uh, go, you know yeah. ebbing and flowing properly so after Mazram didn't get swallowed and everyone else survived the worms they took a uh, quick rest then they found the actual smugglers tunnels in the caves they ran into a quickling and it was a quickling that they fought outside of the void dragons cave when they first you know ran into that area basically they fought I think it was four quicklings and one of them
1: yeah one of them got one away of them
0: survived and took off so this quickling was sent by some hags to deliver a message, but it was also afraid that they were going to murder it, so it kept running from place to place (laughs) and basically trying to throw his voice while delivering this message and not getting within reach of any of them. When I saw the token, I was like,
1: oh, I hate these guys.
0: (laughs) Quicklings are extremely nasty for their CR because they have almost no hit points, but it's harder than hell to hit them, and they stab you like three times around. Yes, so the quickling works for the hags on the isle of midnight and it basically spoiled the conspiracy that the hags of the isle of midnight are supporting the zealots of nethas and two of of the members of the coven are concerned about the ambitions of the leader of the coven and they actually kind of wanted somebody to know about this so that maybe at some point in time they can do something to counter that ambition before it leads to the entire coven getting cut down.
1: It was, it was definitely a, a point of information that's like, oh, this is good information to know.
0: The PCs found a few caches of smugglers crates in the area. They avoided a stone eating ooze that can petrify living matter. And they ran into a giant sewer crocodile. After they killed the Croc, they found one of the Zealots of Nethus. And because I wanted the Priest of Nethus to feel like a Tempest Cleric, basically what I did was I took a Kuotoa Priest and I slapped on some of the subclass abilities for the Tempest Cleric. So the Tempest Cleric also had a Water Elemental Myrmidon as a bodyguard, but he was not bright because we figured out that he could see Kazina out of the corner of his eye right off the bat. So he shoots a lightning bolt, which did absolutely nothing to Kazina because she's a rogue.
1: She's a seventh level rogue, which means she now has, oh crap, what's it called?
0: Uh, Evasion. Evasion. She has evasion, which
1: means if it's a deck saving throw and she makes her saving throw, she takes no damage. She was very frustrating for him.
0: Oh, yeah. So much so that he came out looking for Kazina, leaving his bodyguard behind. So Kazina ended up fighting the cleric and ivy and mazrum and the uh Wyrmling ended up fighting the the myrmidon that worked poorly for the cleric but it worked somewhat well for the uh, elemental <laughs> um in the meantime while all this was going on a red cap peeked out of the area where the priest was hiding and told him that he was going to have to close down the uh, portals that were set up because they had been found out and the cleric was sure that he was going to kill off all these witnesses The red cap wasn't so sure, so the red cap cut off these portals.
1: It was very much fun listening to Jared argue (laughs) with himself as the priest was yelling at the red cap to not shut the portals down, and the red cap is going, yep, shutting the portals down.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, So the water elemental Myrmidon... Did its Ice Burst ability so that it was getting the extra ice damage on all of its attacks. And that dropped Mazrum to zero. But thankfully, we have a Cleric, but we also have... divine soul sorcerer so we have sort of a backup cleric to get the cleric back on his feet when the the cleric goes down hey
1: her divine soul abilities have proved extremely useful
0: yes definitely so the other mistake that the cleric of Nethus made other than just uh leaving his bodyguard behind was that he had this neat ability which is whenever he can do lightning damage to something he can throw it back 10 feet the problem is throwing kazina back 10 feet let her do the um the aim maneuver that's in uh
1: steady aim
0: yeah the steady aim ability that's in uh xanathar's so that or uh, tasha's where she could get her sneak attack damage by throwing something at
1: him. yeah basically you sacrifice your movement to gain advantage on the attack which the advantage on the attack means you get your sneak attack damage
0: and since she is a um a soul knife she's never without something to throw at someone
1: i've actually never had a rogue that is completely disinterested in magical weapons.
0: (laughs) So the other thing was that the dice on roll 20 hated all of us just about (laughs) equally, but really me, because I rolled a healing spell for the cleric, and I think I got like three ones and two twos (laughs) for his healing spell. From the
1: player's side, it was glorious. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's use one of his big spell slots for this. No, no. So that didn't work out too well, Um, but also we all kept rolling low so that water elemental Myrmidon took forever to die. Yeah, that was a long fight. And it also would not recharge its freezing burst, so it was just kind of stabbing people a couple times with its little trident, and then people tried to stab it, and that just kept going back and forth. And thankfully, around the time that I realized that I needed to do something to make this more fun, they finally killed it. So now the party um, has a bunch of smugglers caches that they don't entirely want to loot. They might want to slightly loot them.
1: Professional courtesy.
0: Yeah. Out of professional courtesy. And we ended the session right after the fight since we went pretty long. there. That's one of those things where I don't like dragging out a fight when it's just, you know, I hit, you hit, I hit, you hit, and nobody's hitting. But at the same time... I usually like to think of something that the NPC would do that would make it more fun or would make them retreat. And there's nothing that a water elemental Myrmidon is going to do other than just do what it was told yeah. when it was summoned. So it was like, okay.
1: <laughs> I think it mostly took a little bit longer because it was essentially two separate fights. It was the cleric and Kazina going toe to toe. And then it was the Myrmidon going against Ivy and Masrym, Um And the Myrmidon was tough. He was hard to hit the cleric was not hard to hit but it was just (laughs) kazina going after him and it had i had to have special circumstances to get the sneak attack damage yeah not to mention he could heal himself which while that one roll was truly (laughs) hysterical he did heal himself for one other one that wasn't too bad yes but still it it just i think the nature (laughs) if we had had marin with us the fight would have gone much smoother i think
0: definitely so i think that about it for my campaign journal
1: Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Moving into the Dungeon Master's Workshop, today we're going to talk about treasure and rewards. Mostly because I've been struggling with this in my game and I <laughs> wanted to talk about this. To start off, what are some things you remember about treasure from previous editions?
0: So from Beckme, AD&D, and d and and d 2nd Edition, most of what I remember is that there's long sections of the Dungeon Master's Guide telling you not to give out too much treasure, those editions had treasure types, which determined what kind of treasure individual monsters would have that were in their entries. The, you know, And it would determine whether they had a lot or a little or how much magic you could expect them to have. But that was hard-coded into the monsters. It wasn't anything to do with the character levels or any kind of expectations like that. So, like, if you ran into an ancient dragon, it would have treasure type. And I don't want to say, because I'm sure there are people out there that remember exactly what treasure type it was. Because there was one treasure type that was, like, the dragon treasure type. And it escapes me now, but there was one that, like, almost every dragon had as their main treasure type. But in 3rd and 4th edition, they were a lot more specific about how much treasure you were supposed to have. And magic items were assumed at each level. So, And you were assumed to be able to buy magic items. So knowing that you were supposed to have 10,000 gold pieces meant that you could assume you could probably convert those 10,000 gold pieces into 10,000 gold pieces worth of magic items. Because that's how the game... Balanced characters
1: to be completely upfront my campaign experiences are with Pathfinder in fifth edition only while I ran some sessions of third and fourth edition I never really did much with the issue of treasure I do vaguely recall the monster manual listing like some treasure information with the monsters in third edition but I could be wrong on that I think that might have been a holdover from earlier editions.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I was going to say, and sometimes it's hard to remember whether that was like a third edition entry, a 3.5 entry, or, you know, like even how they coded some of that stuff changed a little bit between editions and 3.5 and all that.
1: Now, when I ran Pathfinder, I felt they had a very good guide for how much wealth a character should have at any given level and how much treasure should be given uh, in an encounter to account for them getting to that wealth level for whatever level they were at. Now, I'm not sure how much of that came directly from third edition and how much was modified into what Pathfinder developers made
0: i did i I didn't really do a side by side, but I think a lot of that did come over from the expectations that were already set up in three five yeah,
1: when I was running it, I felt like I had a good handle on what should be given to the players when you know, of course, this was also Pathfinder, so the whole thing was a bit more gonzo compared to what we're used to in 5e now, part of my whole original Eberron campaign which was run in Pathfinder, I was they were in search of artifacts. And by the time we stopped the campaign, well, paused the campaign to n- possibly never go back to it, um they had they had found 3 of the artifacts. So 3 of the characters had artifacts, but I had them set up <laughs> to scale abilities. Basically, each artifact they they gained which would hopefully be accompanied by the levels of having to adventure to get the artifact (laughs) would give them additional abilities on each artifact so it was narratively tied to the number of artifacts they had basically that campaign was about the players seeking out the items of creation like that's not the right name but they were the something of (laughs) creation that were supposedly Artifacts used at the dawn of time when the, the, the coattles basically drove back the demons. Um, it basically all sorts of Eberron lore that I'm getting little bits wrong here and there. <laughs> but the general idea was these are a thing that was mentioned in the book that I then took and ran with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I do remember about the older editions was that getting magic items was super cool, exciting, and terrifying. <laughs> um, because you really never knew what you were getting and whether it was going to be dangerous, and a teenage g m in the eighties was just as likely to give you a cursed artifact as he was to give you a useful item
0: i I totally didn't give like a third level party the wand of orcas at one point in time. <laughs>
1: I One of my fondest memories of back in those days was Beja, my first edition thief mage, getting a magical loot that led to when we transitioned to second edition to her becoming a bard. I'm still also mad that when I missed a session, another player used some of my magical charges on that loot. My loot. My
0: loot. (laughs) I know
1: that was totally commonly accepted back in the day that it would never happen today. Well, unless you're a teenager running for a bunch of teenagers, because a teenager's going to teenage. I know in later editions of the game, a lot of the treasure was about maximizing which slots had items and making sure you were as effective as possible. Oh, and being very careful of conflicting bonuses. Man, were those a pain to deal with.
0: Yeah, I, the, the mantra of bonuses with the same names do not stack is just burned into my brain. <laughs>
1: yeah it's like the the common thing was like okay you can have a cloak of protection and an amulet of natural armor which will both boost your ac but you can't have a cloak of protection and a ring of protection because those two bonuses won't stack
0: but if you got a luck bonus it was awesome because that stacked with anything <laughs>
1: So moving on into our current age, what's up with treasure in 5e?
0: So 5e kind of goes back to the treasure based on what you encounter, but it doesn't have treasure types. Um, What we've got is there's one section of the DMG that has personal treasure for each of the tiers of experience. So it's like what you would find on an individual. And then there's another section of the DMG that has horde treasures for the same tiers of play. While the DMG says you can give out as much or as little treasure as you like, it does provide an average based on how many of each treasure hoard PCs should have encountered over the course of their careers. So, if you're paying attention, you should, by the end of your career, have had 7 Tier 1 Treasure hoards, 18 Tier 2 Treasure hoards, <laughs> 12 Tier 3 Treasure hoards, and 8 Tier 4 Treasure hoards. Uh, magic items are not figured into the baseline power of player characters in D&D 5e, but there is a section on making player characters at higher level of ability, and they do have some suggestions about what your character should have if your campaign is low magic, average, or high magic. The DMG does not give advice on what low, medium, or high magic campaigns should look like, so it doesn't give you any warning that if you don't hand out magic items, then you're going to have a harder time with creatures like anthrops. That are some of the few things in D&D 5e that are completely immune to non-magic or non-silver weapons.
1: Like Jared obviously is going to be the rules expert here on treasure in 5e. Um, But I can speak to it kind of in an overarching way. Um, Magic treasure comes off as a much slower burn in 5e. Not that the characters don't get any magic, but just that the traditionally impactful items like plus one weapons, armors, etc., come much slower there's also the fact that i know in third and fourth edition those bonus you know the plus one to dex or the plus two to strength items those were common you wanted those and i don't think those exist in 5e at least not commonly
0: I think you still have like your uh, Gauntlets of Ogre Power and things like that, but not the boost to every single ability score that you can uh, think of like you had in 3-5 or Pathfinder.
1: Well, and the interesting thing about the Gauntlets of Ogre Power is like, I've found that those are not as useful for the characters that want that bump for strength because it doesn't give you a bonus to strength. It just gives you your strength is now 19.
0: Yeah, it sets your strength at a certain score.
1: Right, which, if your strength is already an 18, bumping it to a 19 doesn't do anything. <laughs> so, okay, I'm, I'm just going to let the wizard have these, because <laughs> now I don't have to carry all of his crap anymore. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned earlier, I suggested this topic because I was struggling to figure out the right balance of what to give my players in my Eberron campaign. Um, you know, and I'm not sure that 5e gives very good guidance on what and how to distribute treasure to make the players happy, but not unbalance the game. There are some things like attunement, which we'll get to in a bit, that help, you know, balance how many items the players have, but it it still feels like a struggle to make sure my players get interesting stuff, but without going completely Monty Hall on them. Wait a second, do I need to explain Monty Hall? <laughs> okay, this is a term I used to hear all the time referring to a super over-the-top game where players are getting all sorts of really powerful treasure, and it's referring to the host of the game show, Let's Make a Deal, where the people who won could walk away with a ton of stuff. <laughs> anyway.
0: We are old, and even then, I think, uh, I- I think that reference was a little dated by the time we were
1: playing yeah i think i'm that, sorry I, think... Aunt, I
0: didn't mean to say you're old no,
1: no, i know no that term i am honestly convinced came from the people who were actual grognards in the 80s yeah you know the people who were in their let's say 30s and 40s <laughs> just like us yeah uh... <laughs>
0: Um, You know, you brought up an interesting point, though, that I kind of expected the Eberron book to have a little bit more about having an economy, maybe not for the more expensive items, but at least for common and maybe uncommon items, just because of how ubiquitous magic items are really supposed to be in Eberron. And granted, that's supposed to be more like the utility items, but I was expecting a little bit more to address that, and it, even the Eberron book doesn't really do that.
1: Yeah, it doesn't. Um, another issue I have, and we saw this with the playtest, is we made six-level characters. According to the rules, six-level characters get no magic Items <laughs> and you show me a character that has been played from first or third level up to sixth that has no magic items. It's like there's this disconnect between what I think they intended the game to be and what actually ends up happening. Cause I, d- I, I don't know. Do they not expect us to give out any magic at I, all? I,
0: I honestly, I think some of it was just the coming off of uh, third edition and fourth edition where it was literally your character is. Not balanced unless you have X amount of magic items. I think they tried to swing it the other way and say, well, you don't ever need to have magic items. Uh, But I don't know how realistic those, you know, that looks when you say, when you suggest the higher level character shouldn't have these until certain levels.
1: So let's talk about attunement and how that changes the magic item landscape in fifth edition compared to previous
0: editions attunement is to magic items what concentration is to spellcasting in 5e and what that means is it it rains in a lot of the excess that happened in other editions it makes it more manageable so that even if your characters had say 12 magic items that all need attunement you're never going to have more than three of those things active on you at any one time so you can still look for a lot of neat items but you're not going to be benefiting from more than three of them at any one time.
1: Despite my occasional frustrations with it, I like attunement. Uh, It's a good way to keep magical item acquisition from getting out of control. Most of the powerful items require attunement, and since you can only attune to three, it means you have to think very carefully about which items you have at any given time. In some ways, I think it also helps make sure that magic items get distributed through a party more evenly. One thing I've noticed is even if it's not done maliciously or on purpose, you'll end up with one person in the party getting the lion's share of the magic items. Either because they make good arguments for why it's useful for them or because other people don't want to fuss and fight for them. Mm -hmm. And like I said, this isn't always done maliciously. It's just done the, oh, hey, I could really use that. Meanwhile, the person who hasn't gotten a magic item in the last three adventures is like, yeah, I can see that being useful for you. Go ahead and take it. You know, it's like you just you atonement makes sure that like, well, hey, I've got these three items attuned. And while that's really cool, I don't want to give up any of the three I have. So I'm going to let somebody else take it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It really helps, especially if you're attached to the items you've got attuned and don't want to give them up. Because believe me, Dove is never giving up her winged boots. <laughs> Those are practically part of her personality at this point. (laughs) So let's move on and talk about everyone's favorite speed bump on the road to magical fun. Identify.
0: (laughs) So I like the concept of people needing to use magic to learn what an item is. And as a DM, I usually don't volunteer what something is unless the PCs are given something by an NPC that will explain to them exactly what it does. Like if they give it to you for a job, they're going to tell you what it does. That said, there is a huge temptation in 5e that I have the guilty pleasure of really enjoying. And that is, if you attune to something, you know what it does. So there is that temptation that when you're taking that short rest, somebody that really wants to know what that snazzy short sword does might try and attune to it. And that means that if the item is cursed, the PC just walks straight into that curse.
1: <laughs> now, technically, the rules are you don't have to attune to it to understand it. You just need to sit with it for a short rest.
0: Right. You need to spend an hour with it. But it also means that you're going to be, you know, like playing with the magic sword that might want to actually murder all your friends.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You might have to make a saving throw or two.
0: (laughs) That doesn't help necessarily with items that you don't need to attune to. And in that case, I'm usually okay with letting the mystery of the item hang out there for a while. That said, I like to add some clues into how a magic item looks to kind of give them an idea of what it might do. I think there's been a few times when I've handed out magic items when it's just been so obvious based on, (laughs) (laughs) like, I don't know what this is, but I think I know what this is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those things I find nice in concept, but frustrating in execution. There's a certain degree of been there, done that, with not knowing what magical items do upon finding them. You know, like I mentioned earlier, magic items in the olden days were accompanied by just as much fear as they were excitement. But sometimes it was done to an annoying level, which made it less fun. Yeah. So when running Dragon Heist, I tried to be cagey about the magical items they found, but it really started feeling like it was a waste of time. I have never seen the spell Identify used in a 5e game. <laughs> I'd never. Honestly, never. It costs a hundred gold piece pearl to cast for one item. and I've never seen a player actually use this. Everyone always does the short rest to like figure out what the items do. And so for the most part, I usually end up just telling them what they do with the understanding that you can't actually... If it requires attunement, you can't use it until you have that short rest to attune. On top of that, when running in a VTT where you can populate the treasure ahead of time, it's a little hard to hide what an item is when you give those to your players.
0: This is in your inventory. Don't look at your inventory.
1: Yeah, don't 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 pay any attention to that thing that says plus one scimitar. It's just a really shiny, pretty scimitar.
0: I do like though that identify is a uh, ritual spell, though. So. At least you're not burning your spell slots on something if, you know, somebody really wants to find out what it does.
1: Yeah. So how often do you give non-magical rewards and what type of rewards are they?
0: So I don't think I give them out as often as I should. um, But I do kind of like those more ephemeral rewards, like knowing that a certain NPC owes PCs a favor that they can call in and Mm -hmm. making sure that I keep track of that so that if they come back to that NPC, they are going to say, yeah, I'll help you. I'll hook you up with this.
1: I've tried to mix up the non magical rewards a bit so it's not just all coins or magical items. But part of the problem with this ends up being the game potentially coming accounting the role playing game.
2: <laughs>
1: Recently, in the Eberron game, I gave them quote unquote crates of trade goods that they recovered from the pirates. <laughs> this ended up becoming a hotly debated topic in the group. How will they transport? Are they worth taking? Should they just give them away? Should they just leave them behind? Meanwhile, I have the set gold value assigned to these things. And I'm just waiting for the players to stop debating one another. I, it would have just been easier to give them a chest of gold. Mind you, I say this as the known game accountant for most of my D&D games. I am usually the one noting what treasure we got from where keeping a running tally of party gold and making sure it gets split fairly at some point. This isn't as much of an issue since we switched the one game, the Shard because Shard does a very good job of distributing mm-hmm. treasure in anyway, but I had I have spreadsheets. I have Excel spreadsheets from all of my previous <laughs> campaigns where I have been the one to note what we got, where we got it from, who kept it. How much gold we have? When we did a split, I mean, like this is this is something I enjoy doing. <laughs> but as a GM, like I don't know that my players want to be doing that level of minutia. So mm. Mm, I still want to make sure that the like the the, the treasure doesn't feel like we're just always finding coins, because mm-hmm. that doesn't make any narrative sense. Yeah, you know they they should be finding gems and they should be finding. Artif, You know, like non-magical artifacts, yeah. you know, pieces of artwork and treasure and stuff like that. It's just sometimes you got to be careful that your game doesn't get too lost in the minutia. And God help you if your players want to try and sell it and haggle to get it to be <laughs> worth more.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's it's actually something, you know, that we had come up in this last session is those most of those uh, smuggling boxes had like stolen uh, jewelry and artwork and things like that in them. And narratively, I just wanted to make sure that it's clear like, these are all stolen things. You probably can't just go to a legitimate place and cash this in for gold pieces. You're probably going to have to use a fence, which means even though it's 6,000 gold pieces worth of stuff, you're probably not going to get 6,000 gold pieces because you're going through a fence to get this. Yeah. Or, think, you know, you can I like run to another city and try and do it. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think in the end, we only took the obviously magical items and the coins with Kazina taking a couple of shiny baubles here or there as souvenirs. Mm. It's also professional courtesy. Somebody put these here for a reason. Maybe they shouldn't have left these uh, cultists of Nethis move in, but hey. (laughs) So speaking of money, let's talk about how much you give out and how do your players actually end up using it? Or do they just sit on it like a wannabe little (sighs) dragon?
0: So I'm not like super rigorous about having a specific formula. Um, If I start out characters at first level, though, I do have this weird thing where I like to kind of manage expectations so that even if I'm paying them a lot, I would rather pay them a lot in silver when they're like first or second level. So there's still that feeling like you don't see gold pieces that often yet. You know, it's not that sort of, you know, it's more of a story beat than it is anything else. Um, I do tend to like to make sure my PCs have downtime in between adventures. I think you can actually get a lot of interesting story elements by what downtime people pick. But if you notice, most of the downtime that is actually detailed in either the DMG or Xanathars costs money to do, (laughs) which means at low levels, that downtime doesn't do a lot for the PCs until they start making money. Mm-hmm. so you need to start handing them out some money so they can pay for their downtime. <laughs> Just in case, because this is super easy to miss in the DMG, but if you have PCs that are working for a patron, it actually says in there that the appropriate amount for you to offer them as payment is C- a CR hoard equal to the average party level. So if you've ever wondered how much should how much should my uh, D&D quest-giving bosses offer to pay people... That's what it is. It's in the DMG, but it's like one sentence in the whole book.
1: (laughs) I wish that was called out a little more because that that would be good information to know. (laughs) Now, let me state up front, I will never give my players Electrum. I think it is the stupidest currency in D&D. In my game, only copper, silver, gold, and platinum exist. If it can't be converted by multiples of 10, get out of my game. Okay. That little aside out of the way, I try and give out money fairly frequently as a reward, but it always ends up being a little tricky. Some characters need it and use it more than others. In the Eberron campaign, Cargill, the artificer, is carefully guarding every copper because he has things he needs to buy. Other (laughs) characters like Manic the Druid, not so much. I mean, the player still wants the gold, but the character doesn't really have as much (laughs) to use them on. I think it is... It's important to try and set up things for your players to spend that money on. Like Jared has the downtime. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm probably going to try and institute that to a certain degree. In the Dragon Heist campaign, the players have their tavern to invest money in. So that often helped keep the coin moving in and out of the group. Like I said, I don't have that in the Eberron game yet, but we'll see what we do as the campaign advances.
0: You know, you actually, that's an interesting thing that I saw playing in Adventurers League is, for example, one of my characters that I played a lot in Adventurers League was a monk. I had no use for coins whatsoever. (laughs) Like, I could care less. But the problem is, if you're playing a wizard in Adventurers League and you're not getting much treasure, you aren't getting enough money to scribe extra spells into your spell book either because that also costs money on top of what you're paying for any spell components you have and everything else. What I'm saying is, apparently, it costs money to be a wizard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in the Undermountain campaign where I am playing Selena the fighter, um, we have accumulated a fair amount of gold, in part because we stole a pirate ship and sold it. <laughs> um, but anyway, this, this was... Several months ago, I was going to Jared. Does Waterdeep have banks? <laughs> you know, so we worked it out with the GM how we could have banking in Waterdeep, which is a nebulous topic. But we decided that there were banks. So Selena basically took herself and Tad our grung wrestler he's he's a multi-class <laughs> beast but anyway he's a very innocent non-worldly character but he had as much gold as the rest of us so Kazina's like okay come on i'm gonna take you here we're gonna set up an account for you you're gonna put this and then we're gonna go to the bazaar and like we, uh, we we just narratively hand wave that she did this because we weren't gonna sit there and we don't we don't do shopping in my my group's games it's mm-hmm. just we've had bad experiences but, like, it was very specifically taking taken this character, which is essentially a monk without being a monk,
2: uh-huh.
1: to the bazaar and saying, okay, you can buy whatever you want. And him being like, I want that. That's a sweet treat. It <laughs> costs two copper. Okay, I want that.
0: I have spent money.
1: <laughs> I have spent money. I have given the man shinies for something nice. <laughs>
0: that's, like, that's one of those things, like, when you open the purse up and say, uh, take whatever, whatever that costs. <laughs>
1: so what are some of your favorite low-level magic items to give out because i think this is one of those topics that like we want to give our players cool stuff but we don't want to necessarily go over the top and give too much too early so what are some low-level magic items that are fun to give out
0: some of my favorite low-level magic items are like the common magic items that have shown up in some of the more recent books dana has you know some common items in there and can't remember if Tasha's had more common items in there or not but basically a lot of common items are just neat little narrative things like the 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 cloak of billowing that just like constantly like (laughs) flows as if it is in the wind um I like um I like uh the the shimmer weave uh outfits where you can basically make it turn into different types of clothing there's what was it the um there's a type of armor that will not get dirty no matter what happens to it <laughs> those things are all fun because at low levels they're not changing the math of what your characters can do but it is you know giving them something that is obviously not normal that they can play with the other thing though that's kind of fun is because 5e does not require magic I, magic weapons to have a plus of anything they just need to be magic weapons. You can give out magic weapons to add some survivability to your characters that aren't plus anything. There yeah. is the like the moon touch sword, literally, just glows with moonlight but it is a magical sword. So technically it will harm anything that is resistant to non-magical things. And that's, I actually kind of like that about 5e and how they redefine that.
1: And that is something as GM, you want to be careful. Of. This, this goes more to populating encounters and stuff, but having stuff that is resistant to non-magical weapons can be really dangerous for a low level party. And if you're not, if you're not prepared for what you've put up against them, You'd be like, "Oh crap! I'm gonna TPK this whole group." Um, <laughs> and and you know, like it doesn't matter as much for the spellcasters because they've always got magic available. But your sword, or your sword, your warrior, or your rogue standing out there with their weapon is like, "I'm gonna die because I can't hurt this thing."
0: <laughs> your monk doesn't have magic fists until they're like six level, I think. So. Yeah. <laughs>
1: There are a whole bunch of fun, wondrous items that have been given out to a low-level party without unbalancing game. One of my favorites is the folding boat. Mm-hmm. It's just a neat little way <laughs> to give the party a means of traversing a body of water. I mean, it is literally just a boat that folds into a cube that you can stick back in your pocket. I mean, maybe not your pocket, but your backpack. And it's just like, it's just cool Mm -hmm. um in the city of cow's game one of the early low level magic items that we got that has seen the most narrative use is dust of dryness (laughs) chris's rogue anu ended up with a whole collection of liquid filled marbles from her bag of dust of dryness (laughs) um she has a marble of ale she has a marble of a couple of marbles of just water uh, and a marble of crack and poop filled swamp water. I actually reached out to Chris to be like, hey, has Anu used that yet? And he was like, no, I think I still have it on my sheet. I'm still saving it for the right moment.
0: Uh, the right moment. Yeah.
1: And sometimes those little odd wondrous items can be the best magic items to give out they can be just absolutely delightful for some players to get this magic item that has no mechanical use in a combat but if you're creative enough can add to this you know the game and the scenes like like the um never-ending uh the the, the, ge- the geyser the never-ending yeah the
0: decanter of endless water yeah
1: decanter De- decanter of endless water that's useless. It just gives you some water. You can't actually use it in combat, but you can do some creative things with that, and it's mm-hmm. not going to really unbalance your game. So what about other rewards, like pets, companions? Um, you mentioned uh, favors earlier. Mm-hmm. When and why do you hand them out?
0: So I think, you know, first off, I think a lot of these you hand out when it narratively makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the way you balance them is by just knowing how far someone's going to take something like somebody owes you a favor that favor might be i'm going to help you sneak into this place and make sure there's no guards there at night not i'll assassinate the king for you right specifically some of the things that i introduced in our campaign totally came out of just the roleplay i had the the rules for the uh from mcdm for the monstrous companions and at first that was not the direction that the void dragon dying and the whole Ritual to bring him back that I really didn't think that Ivy uh, was going to go along with. <laughs> in my mind, I was thinking, okay, maybe he'll come back as some kind of weird draconic undead, and every so often you can go visit him. And then when I was looking through there and I saw the dragon wormling as one of the uh, monstrous companions, I was like, no, this is a story beat. This is <laughs> this is something that that you know we should introduce into the group. And what's interesting about that is, in theory, even though technically. She could hand him off to anyone else as long as he trusts them. But essentially, that's not so much boosting the power of a player. It's effectively from the way the rules explain it. It's more like adding a character to the party. You just have someone tracking their their ferocity and all of that. But that was totally just a thing that came up out of the narrative. And it was a nice place where, hey, this thing from some rules that I have seen will fit this developing situation really well.
1: (laughs) I think. You know, the favors and friends falling into this category is often really an overlooked reward you can give your players. I think it can happen organically through the story, but depending upon what type of GM you are, it's worth thinking about how those connections and relationships can help the party in the long run. Um, I love in a video game like where you you make friends and do things for people And at the big finale, they show up to help you. Mm -hmm. It is a little harder to pull off in a tabletop D&D game, but it's still a nice concept. I've been looking at a couple of different things for the Eberron campaign, and I don't want to get too specific (laughs) because I haven't really given it to the player yet. (laughs) Uh, But I don't think he'd listen to this unless I pointed it out to him. So it's probably safe to share. Um, There's a creature in the Eberron book that tends to decide it likes a particular person and bonds with them and follows them around. And mm-hmm. I've been slowly leading up to one of these creatures bonding with one of my characters. Now it's not this is a character who would otherwise never have a familiar, never always have an animal companion. Um, but it it's a it'll be a very cool narrative touch. Mm-hmm for his character. In the Ladies of Fazdell game, my rogue Z ended up with a Pegasus mount named Maximus after the horse from <laughs> Tangled. And he was such a fun reward, it, you know, and he added so much to the story, so much to the story, in fact, that the artwork I had done of the characters from that campaign has Maximus in the background with his <laughs> wings spread wide, you know, and it's not like she was... You know, it's not like she was a druid or a ranger where having an animal companion would matter. It was just the story made sense that we saved a princess in a kingdom that raised Pegasus. And to thank me, they gave me one Mm -hmm. because I was the only one crazy enough to actually try and figure out how (laughs) to ride a Pegasus. There's also the concept of rewarding skills, feats or other abilities. This should be done very carefully. But letting your players add a new language or tool proficiency because it makes sense isn't necessarily a bad thing to do. I gave my players uh, in the Sabaron campaign all a bonus feat as a, you know, like, okay we're now heading on this expedition. You get a bonus feat as you, you know, hit fourth level. Mm -hmm. And it was something they were all really excited about and, you know, super happy to add to their characters. And I don't think it unbalances the game too much.
0: It's a good way to model, like, a mentor training PCs, Mm -hmm. because a lot of times it's hard to think of, well, training, are you just going to give us an extra level? Well, no, but, like, if a fighter gets training from a mentor, you could give them a feat that represents, like, a fighting style or something. Yeah. And that would be, like, training that they got from this person. It's a feat above and beyond the regular That is, you know, affecting their martial abilities or like a wizard learning elemental adept from, you know, from a mentor.
1: I love elemental adept. (laughs) Anyway, so any last thoughts on treasure and rewards before we start wrapping things up?
0: I think the main thing about treasure is that players should feel rewarded and it's going to vary by campaign and it's going to vary by the players in the campaign. Sometimes people just want uh, the narrative to tell them that they're appreciated by giving them something, whether it's a pat on the back from an NPC or a physical object whether they ever use it or not and other times if they're struggling for every win any kind of useful item especially like disposable ones that they don't feel guilty about you know you know opening up and using it's gonna feel like a godsend because suddenly they're gonna feel like they're on a level playing field because things have been really rough for them because let's say oh i don't know roll 20 hates them and gives them bad dice
1: (laughs) ultimately do what's fun for your game it can be very easy to get caught up in the minutia of handing out treasure for your group, which is great if that's what you want to do and what your group wants to get into. But if you're not having fun doing accounting the role playing game, then <laughs> loosen up a little bit. You know, give what is going to be fun for you and your players. Everyone loves getting magic items and treasure in the games, so do what makes you and your players happy. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research.
0: All right, let's take a look at downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something we think will enhance your D&D experience.
1: So this isn't exactly D&D centric, but Shannon Applecline, the author behind the Designers and Dragons series, fantastical historical look at the RPG industry, has posted a year in review for 2022 on RPGNet um, amid all of the other bits and things touched on for the year. RPGs amid all of the other bits and things touched on for the year in RPGs. It also discusses a bit of the news about Wizards, Hasbro, and the OGL. It's a fairly short read and worth a look to see what of note has happened in RPGs over the year. Um, and we'll have a link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely a good thing to pass along. So if you follow my reviews on Gnome Stew, you've probably already seen this. If you haven't seen my reviews on Gnome Stew, I'm sad and you should make <laughs> me feel better by reading them. Read him. Anyway what i'm going to mention is the oracle story generator it is a box set with different cards that you can use to generate adventure details like who the who the party patron is who the villain of a story is what the party needs to accomplish and what the twist in the adventure might be um there's different styles of adventures and different decks so you have some decks that generate side quests you have some that generate epic fantasy quests that are like major campaign arcs this is from nord games and there's also a pdf that has all of the card results listed as tables so if you would rather just look at those tables and roll on those tables you can do the same thing but me because i'm very tactile there's something really neat about drawing cards and seeing these results (laughs) but that uh, pdf also has some sample adventures basically showing what they pulled in the cards and then fleshing it out as like a full page thing that lays it out into like a three-act structure so if you get the chance take a look at that because I, i i think it's a really neat product
1: that, is, that does sound really cool.
0: So we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out...
1: Bonus Experience! Ray and Monica are two old friends exploring gameplay and design through the lens of diversity, while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer.
0: Well, we've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.
2: Yay!